Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. At the beginning of Luke chapter 2, the author sets up an artificial parallel between the Lucan things accomplished among us and Caesar's decree that a census be taken. Insofar as both attempts at setting the record straight take place under the authorship of the evangelist himself, Far from an account of Roman history, the census set forth by Augustus is part of Luke's clever anti-history of the Roman Empire. Sadly, centuries later, it's hard to believe that the King James Bible's translators captured this irony since errors in their translation continue to betray a severe bias for their human master who bears a striking resemblance to Luke's villain. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 456 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today's episode is an episode of parallels. We are at the beginning of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. We began chapter 1 with the account of the things. And Imin Pragmaton, and we spent a lot of time earlier in this series, Richard, explaining that Luke is engaged in a monologue, decidedly in opposition to the Hellenistic dialogue, because he is, in a way, setting the record straight, not with respect to historical events, but with respect to the teaching for the sake of the Gentile church. Of course, chapter 1 deals with the situation in the church in Judea, the church among the sons of Israel, and the evangelization, as it were, of Zacharias, and the bringing of the gospel to that church, first by the messenger of the Lord, the Lord's champion Gabriel, but then by the church evangelized by Paul. But then there's a switch that takes place at the beginning of chapter 2. Before we talk about that transition, what's interesting is we have another character in the context of the narrative arc of the New Testament, another Satanas, who sits in opposition to the throne of the one who sent Gabriel to evangelize Zacharias, who also wants to set their own record or establish a kind of record and establish a different story with a different aim. So there's this interesting parallel. There are these tensions at work. 
We're dealing, of course, with two different communities. We're dealing with two different situations. And now we're dealing with a different opponent of the heavenly throne, Caesar Augustus. They always say that it's the victors who write the history. It's not true. The losers also write history. They write their own story. It's just that people like to believe people who win. They don't like to believe people who lose. And so that's why the history books include the story of the winners because nobody wants to believe the losers. And Luke here sets out to write the story of the loser, Jesus. This is in direct opposition to whatever Caesar would write because Caesar can't help himself. He has to write a story about how he's the champion. He's the winner. He wins all his fights and everybody bows down to him and he's the greatest. He's the richest. He's the most powerful the world has ever seen. And that's why the gods love him so much. That's the story that Caesar is going to write. And in the beginning of Luke, thank you for reminding me of that, Father, because the beginning of Luke the narrator is telling Theophilus, here are the things that happened so that we might believe. People get mixed up. They think that what the Bible writes is opinion and what historians dig up in Latin is history, that there are two different categories somehow. No. In Latin itself, the word story and the word history are the same word, historia. In English, they, that's why history and story sound the same is because they came from from the same root. And in French, it's the same word, histoire, whichever one. Okay. So when Caesar writes, he does not have any more authority over the listener than Luke does. The only authority that Caesar has that Luke doesn't is the power of the sword. And that's an, and I mean actual sword. <laughs> I'm not talking about a story about a sword. I'm talking about actual swords. And what Luke does is Luke is telling you that the one who loses is ultimately the winner. So if you get hacked by the sword on behalf of the will of the one who brought you the words through the angel Gabriel through this text, now you can be the winner because you are the slave of the one who brings you salvation. And that's why in chapter one, there was so much about the salvation that God brings to Israel. This is about his victory. Here, as we begin in chapter two, we're starting a story about this other counter history, counter story that Caesar Augustus would like to tell about himself. And this is how the setting sets up this opposition right off the bat here at the beginning of chapter two. It's important to note by the way, that we're not dealing with the historical Caesar Augustus. We're dealing with the character Caesar Augustus created by the author Luke in the story of the Gospel of Luke. So in a way, the manner in which I teed up the program today is incorrect. It's not Caesar Augustus and his version of events versus Luke's version of events. It's Luke's version of events, which include a concocted <laughs> version of Caesar's version of events. So, in true form, the anti-historical tradition of Scripture is emasculating the story told 
by the historical victors, because obviously the Romans would dominate the earth for several centuries after this text was written, but not from the purview of the New Testament, which controls its own story. That's the trick. The author rules the world that the author creates for himself. That's the beauty of literature. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. For those of you listening to this story who live in the West, who are accustomed, especially those living in the United States, who are accustomed to being part of a superpower, who expect that it's normal for you to decide how other countries should do their business, that you have a right to determine what universal values are and therefore determine how other countries should run their societies, how they should participate in world affairs, what kind of leaders they should choose, how their people should live, what form of government they should use, that you have a right or should have a say in the affairs of other societies. Now, we'll give lip service to saying that we think everyone should do what they want, but the reality is we are willing to spend money, offer military support, and go to great lengths to influence the affairs of other countries because we believe it is our right to influence the whole world because we are very much influenced by the hubris of the classical world and Hellenistic universalism. So it doesn't strike us as being particularly arrogant that Caesar Augustus would set out to conduct a census of the whole world. But it's profoundly arrogant. He is setting himself up as a god who can number all the living things upon the earth. It's offensive. If you are scriptural, what he is doing is offensive. It harkens back once again to Genesis and my mention in a previous episode, Richard, of the sun and the moon. God demotes the sun and the moon to make it very clear that he controls the seasons. And he controls the seasons in order to protect the land from the abuse that human rulers inflict upon the land when they control the seasons. Why does Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar want a calendar? So that they can exploit the land to extract value from the land. Why does God control the luminaries? So that there can be an appointed time to gather to hear instruction and to give a rest to the land from our exploitation of the land. So there's this innate tension in Scripture. Why does Luke set out to give an account of God's instruction so that there would be light on the earth, the light of the instruction? Why does Caesar set out to count everybody so that he can control everybody for his own interest? This is how you have to hear Scripture. Luke is setting up this grudge match between the ego of Caesar Augustus and the light of divine instruction. Yeah, I love how you put that, Father. This is the, this is the grudge match. 
This is the will of Caesar versus the will of God, the teaching of Caesar versus the teaching of God. This is how we're going to lay it out. And it's, it's significant that God sent one angel to speak to a couple of people, and there were certain people around when they spoke, the human beings, when they finally spoke. But how many people? We don't know. But the first thing that Caesar Augustus does in this narrative is goes and counts how many people he has. How many people does he own? How big is his household? Now, God's going to do that on the last day. That's what the judgment is for, who's part of his household and who isn't. But Caesar wants to figure out who is in his land, who does he own? That's what he wants to know. Who does he own? And King James translates this counting as the world should be taxed. That's normally how you would use that, but this is an odd level of interpretation unless I'm misunderstanding something from this earlier form of archaic English of what taxed means versus a census. But in Greek, what it means for us would be a census. He wants to count the people. David tried to do this once. He got in big trouble because God said, can't you just trust that you have enough? You have to go and count it. This is looking a gift horse in the mouth when it comes to David. Now, Caesar Augustus has no claims to be following the Lord to be one of his servants. There's only one God. Caesar's going to find that out on judgment day, but he doesn't pretend to be a servant of the Lord. So he goes and he counts according to his own teaching. It's because he wants to be able to know how big are his muscles. Can he bench press 200 pounds or can he bench press 300 pounds? Because people are more impressed by people who can bench press 300 pounds than those who can bench press 200 pounds. If he's got 5 million people in his empire, wonderful. If he's got 15 million, even better. What? You've got five classes in your Sunday school this year and before that, you only had three? Uh-oh, wait a second. Did you start counting how many Sunday school classes you had? Because actually, you don't need to count how many Sunday school classes you have. That's the wrong direction. This is the way that the flesh would go, because we feel good when our numbers get higher. But it's enough to accept with gratitude those whom the Lord sends, because we don't own them. They are not under our control. We don't get to use them in order to prop up our own name for marketing materials. We do the same thing if we teach one person as if we teach five, as if we teach 15. And the ruler that is placed by God is in charge of whoever is placed under him by the goodwill and the grace of God. This point that you made, Richard, about count versus tax is actually critical because it exposes what Father Paul refers to as the postmodernist King James Bible. Because what was King James interested in, the king who built Jamestown? He was interested in the taxation of the colonies and the exploitation of the land. We've already talked about how that impacted their translation of the Hebrew. But here, it's definitely impacting their translation of the Greek. If you're a British king who's interested in extracting taxes from the colonies, you're going to equate counting people with taxing them. 
This is the problem with translation and your personal narrative. You can't say, well, Father Mark, we know that by counting them, Caesar's going to tax them. No, we don't know that. You can't say that. The Greek doesn't say tax. Maybe he wants to kill them. Maybe he wants slaves. Maybe he's trying to see how many soldiers he can take out of this region to use to go fight the barbarians in the other province. You don't know what's going on. And you don't know what it means for the rest of the story. But this is an excellent point about the problem of inserting your personal narrative into the hearing or the reading of the text, as we talked about last week with the question of capitalization, which may or may not be an issue depending on whether you're reading versus hearing the word spirit. So please don't fall in the trap of saying the King James Version is the authoritative English translation. Far from it. Far from it. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.